in a world created by Dr. Seuss. Hold on a second. Lucas. In a world created by Dr. Seuss, two peoples are at war, the Ukes and the Zooks. Theirs is a conflict that goes back at least two generations, each side knowing that the other was wrong and evil. Thank you. <laughs> He's helpful. So this story is told by a grandfather, Uke. He's telling his grandson about this war, and he, he walks him past a sign that says, Ukes are not Zooks. And he says, every Zook must be watched. He has kinks in his soul. That's why as a youth I made watching my goal, watching Zooks with a Zook-watching border patrol. Then he tells his grandson his life story, how he has always watched those Zooks. First he had a tough-tufted prickly snickberry switch, but one day a Zook fought back with a slingshot. So the grandfather came back with a trickle sling jig triple sling jigger. This is going to be really hard. <laughs> the Zook ran away, but came back another day with a jigger rock snatch him, which captured the rocks and flung them right back. So the Uke came back with a kickapoo kid, a gun that shot powerful pooadoo powder. But the Zook only came back with an eight-nozzled, elephant-toted boom blitz that shoots high-explosive sour cherry stone pits. Then came an utterly sputter that sprinkled blue goo, but it was answered by a blue gooer as well. By the end of the story, each side has invented a big boy boomeroo, a small device that will mean total victory for whoever uses it. The story ends with a grandson aghast who would use such a weapon. And what was this war all about? Don't know if you remember this story. This, this generations-long blood, blood feud and anger and hatred. The Ukes eat their bread butter side up. And the Zooks eat their bread butter side down. It is the Butter Battle book, after all. Love, Dr. Seuss. I imagine there are a few different morals that people have taken from this story, but one of them certainly has to be that once we make a judgment about people, it's really easy for things to escalate and get out of hand. Once that judgment is made, we can lose all perspective. Total condemnation can start to feel like the most moral thing in the world. Our kind has the right, honest way, and they are the terrible, wrong, evil-in-all-things types. All from one small judgment that someone made ages ago. Jesus tells all who would hear him, do not judge others so that you may not be judged. Perhaps you have been on the receiving end of this Bible verse. You're having a conversation with someone, and you make one maybe sort of off comment about someone or something, and they'll come back at you with a little harsh, judge not, which they say in a, well, kind of judgy way, which makes them smug and righteous and correct because they have shut you down and shown you up as the judgy person that you truly are. They're not judgmental, you're judgmental. The most fun thing, I think, about conversations like that is that they happen with little or no irony, just there. But leaving aside for a moment how we sometimes misuse or fall victim to this Bible verse, what is Jesus saying here? 
The Greek word used for to judge in this passage could mean to decide or to think, but if you look at the context, the sentence would make zero sense. Do not think about others so they may not be thought about. No, that Jesus isn't telling us to stop thinking, to stop discerning what is going on around us. If we step back, we can see that the primary meaning of to judge is to bring someone to a trial, which means that you're the one who announces the final verdict of innocent or guilty. Jesus is saying that none of us are the final judge of anyone's innocence or guilt. We are not the ones who determine their worth or their punishment. We do not see into their soul as God does. And so Jesus warns us, you will be judged in the same way you judge others. This kind of a scary, strong statement if you really think about it. If we jump to conclusions, don't take past circumstances into account, don't look at the present situation, refuse to show grace and mercy and patience, Jesus says that's exactly how we'll be judged by God. But if we pray for one another, seek to do good for one another, see the light of Christ in each other's eyes and hearts, if we judge fairly and kindly, we will be judged fairly and kindly. When Jesus said, judge not, we know that he wasn't saying that we should have no opinion about evil and sin and wrongdoing in the world. We are absolutely called to recognize and respond to all that is broken, but we are to do it with eyes towards mercy and justice. First Thessalonians emphasizes this, test everything, hold fast to what is good. We are not called to blithely accept things as broken or to make excuses for the evil around us. We do good, we resist evil. And if we are to do that, then we have to test everything to find the good in it, to look for the good and nurture it in ourselves and all around us. True non-judgmental Christian living is anything but passive tolerance. Returning to the gospel passage, a very familiar one at that, we can see Jesus' first answer to our impulse to be judgmental. Did you happen to notice that log in your own eye? Did you notice all the ways that you have come up short or really, truly meant well, only to have everything blow up spectacularly? What's beautiful to me about this speck and log story is not that we are doomed forever to be blinded by our own failings. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Jesus is saying that if we can see the log that is in our own eyes, really work to address our own sin and our blinders, then it's possible for us to see clearly. And only then can we be of real help to others in healing their own hindrances and starting to address their own obstacles. But we should always, always see our own logs as logs and their specks as specks. And it's there that we find humility and grace and even empowerment to be of real service. 
This theme gets picked up again in the passage from 1 Thessalonians. There, like other passages, Paul charges the congregation to care for the spiritual well-being of one another. He says, we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. Admonish the idlers is not something we'd really say very often, but it's actually not a great translation. What the NRSV has as idler really means a person who is out of step with God's appointed order and will for humanity. The word actually comes from military language, so it's closer to someone who's out of formation or maybe temporarily lost sight of their mission. It specifically refers to someone who's already gotten their marching orders, but maybe they lost track of them a little bit along the way. They know their mission, but they need that guidance right back on the right path. And so admonishing them doesn't mean yelling, screaming, judgmental, how could you be so stupid, how could you fail everyone, you're going straight to hell kind of interaction. That's not what admonishing is. Admonishing is a gentle reminder of what the mission was, what it's always been, so that the follower of Christ can say, yes, that's right, I didn't notice that I had gotten off the path. Rather than there being a powerful, righteous one who judges the sinner into submission, this interaction is one of one who trusts and expects the follower of Christ to recognize their own sinful behavior when they hadn't realized that what they're doing was sinful. This interaction has faith that the sinner wants to be good. And that, my friends, brings us to meat and veggies. Now, Paul was writing to a different community in this letter, that's the church in Rome, and Rome was a huge cosmopolitan city, so the church is filled with people from all kinds of walks in life, walks of life, backgrounds, and cultures from all over the known world. Some of them are meat eaters, and others, dun-dun-dun, are vegetarians. Now, there were all kinds of reasons for being vegetarian in ancient Rome. Some would have read the book of Daniel, which says that Daniel would not eat the king's food because it had been sacrificed to idols, so the meat had been sacrificed. Not wanting to look as though they were supporting idol worship, they would then abstain from all the meat from the marketplace because, honestly, who knows where that comes from? It's just safer. Don't eat the meat. Others would have felt that wine and meat were gluttony, uh, an overindulgence that was not appropriate for true spiritual seekers and followers of Christ. Some people in Rome, I just learned this week, even believed in the transmigration of souls, which is after you die, your soul is reincarnated into another animal or person. And so for those people, eating meat meant killing somebody, and they couldn't do that. I didn't know that was in Rome, but it seems to have been. Now, Paul for his part, did not agree with any of those people. He thought that was all bonkers. For him, in Christ we have liberty, and that means things that we eat or don't eat, that is not key to our salvation. This is not stuff that matters to him. And that's how Paul lived his life, and that's what he taught people in the churches. But you'll notice in our passage from Romans, Paul doesn't say, you who are righteous and strong, mock and expel all those who disagree, those who in their weakness imagine that God cares about meat or special days. That's not what he says at all. 
Instead, Paul says, welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. That's really hard to do. Quarreling is so easy. Paul explains, we're going to disagree about lots of stuff in our life of faith, matters of personal practice, but that is not the be-all, end-all essence of who we are. He says, who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? Remember that each one will be judged by God and trust that that is sufficient. In matters of personal practice, we can eat meat or not in honor of the Lord. We can worship on Sunday or Wednesday or any other day and still honor and give thanks to God. We are not called to be judges, but servants in community with one another. We are not to condemn or despise one another, but to assess honestly what is happening. And so these Bible verses challenge us to clarity and self-awareness. From there, we can try to see what is happening and gently admonish when we see a sister or a brother out of step. From there, we can take a step back and wonder, does the difference of faith and opinion affect salvation, or is it just a different practice that can still honor God? Is it something real and important, or is someone choosing to eat their toast butter side down? Which is still crazy, but it's okay. Paul admonishes us. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That is why Christ came to us, lived for us, died for us, and rose again, so that Christ could be the Lord of the dead and the living, so that Christ could be our loving and merciful judge. We are accountable to God who is waiting to relieve and forgive us. Judge not and trust in the one who judges all. Amen.